Who's got a Bible with him? Let me see. Hold them up. Praise the Lord. I love to see that. Right on. Okay, Revelation chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1 and just read the first letter. The letter to the church at Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, again, we pray that your word, your word would reach our hearts. And your word would affect, Lord, change and sanctification and strength and, Lord, calling in all of us to be those who speak your word. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rounding out his kingdom parables, Matthew 13. Jesus said in verse 52, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Things new and old. And I believe in stating this, Jesus was hinting at the revelation. Speaking about or pointing to the revelation. Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. That's the revelation. It's things new and old. It's old in that it draws deeply from the well of the ancient prophets and all of Hebrew history. It's new in that it reaches beyond things dealt with in the Hebrew scriptures. That we find things in the revelation that are not talked about by the Hebrew prophets. Though much of it is. So what are we talking about here? Well, Revelation 119 is a beautiful outline of the book, what we've called the unpacking guide. Do you know it? Are you familiar with it? Jesus said, therefore write the things which you have seen. Which was what? This is interactive. Very good. Jesus glorified. Glorious Jesus in chapter 1. And then Jesus said, and write the things which are, which is... Church age. Excellent. The church. Chapters 2 and 3. And then he said, and write the things which will take place after these things. So that's chapters 4 and 5, which has us where? In heaven. In heaven. Right. An amazing glimpse of heaven. Chapters 6 through 18 deals with what? Tribulation. Tribulation on earth. Chapter 19 shows us what? The Millennial Kingdom. Spencer, that's chapter 20. Go back and do your homework. 
He just can't wait. That's the issue with Spencer. He wants the kingdom now. Well, I am. I'm here to build you up, bro. (laughs) He's like, when does our flight leave? Okay. Chapter 19 is the marriage feast of the Lamb and the second second coming, the glorious return of Jesus. Right? You know that. He knows. Chapter 20, Spencer. The millennial kingdom is in chapter 20. And then finally chapters 21 and 22 which deal with the new new and new right, right. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, all three of them and it is going to be, listen, a glorious garden paradise. The new Jerusalem in the new earth under the new heaven will be a garden paradise. How do you know that? Well, in verse 7 of this letter, and we studied the letter on Wednesday, so if you didn't hear that, go back and check it out. Pay attention to it. It's very important. Every teaching in this book is going to be vitally important. But in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise. Paradiso. We get it straight out of the Greek. The Greeks got it straight from the Hebrew, which is pardos. Pardos, which means orchard or garden. The paradise of God, the garden of God, the orchard of God. Jesus is calling us back to the garden. Back to the garden. Better than Eden. We are being invited to something yet future. A garden paradise of God. That is such good news. That's so exciting. Something that goes beyond the Hebrew writers, the prophets, is the garden paradise of God. We need good news this week, don't we? This earth, this world, this country is getting old. It is wearing out. Humanity is hardening. You might even say humanity is devolving. This is not an evolutionary process. We are a, a people devolving. 13 male bombs, you read the news, you heard about it, sent out in the last two weeks. None of these bombs detonated, but they succeeded in blowing up incendiary, incendiary blame in politics and in the media. And it's still just going on. It's just nothing, there, there has been no cease. You would think with these kinds of threats that people would pull back, especially on both sides of the political aisle, and say for a moment, wait a minute, we're Americans. Wait a minute, let's be unified. And some are trying to call for that, but most are just plowing ahead with the hate. And it's getting old. And of course, if you heard yesterday, worse happened. As the gunman entered the Tree of Life, or La Simcha Synagogue in Pittsburgh, PA, shouting, all Jews must die, he killed 11 people. Six more were wounded, injured, and this during a bris, a circumcision, during a Shabbat service on Saturday morning about 9.45. Shabbat, rest, Sabbath. Jews just showing up for their time of fellowship, their Sabbath rest. Tree of Life, La Simcha, these, these two, actually two congregations uh, merged five years ago. 
to become one larger congregation, one larger synagogue of Jewish believers, a, a conservative synagogue there in Pittsburgh. Jesus warned us of these things. I actually heard someone say, a reporter say yesterday, this is evidence of the times we are in. I thought, he has no idea how prophetic he's being right there. Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, the love of most people will grow cold. Matthew 24, 12. We have quoted that verse, I don't even know how many times over the last two, three years, and we just see it intensifying in our culture. Love is dying. Love is growing cold. Any kind of grace given to others, we're not seeing it. And this world will not and cannot know love until we remember our first love. For the non-believer to remember the first love means to remember the one who created you in the first place. The one who made you. The one who out of love gave you life. Remember your first love. The unconditional, agape, love of God that we believers understand we know was offered up most significantly in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at Calvary. The first love. He loved before we did. We love because He first loved us. Remember your first love. For until this world does, this world will know nothing but the hatred that we see. Until this country recognizes that we have a first love and begins to act in that pattern, we will not see a change in what's going on around us. This sacrifice of Jesus was for all people. But as we talked about, as we read last week, as we saw, Jesus wrote these letters to the church. Not to the lost, although they are for the lost. He wrote to the church so that the church would carry out the responsibility of declaring the love of God in Christ Jesus. That our loyalty lies with the love of Christ. That our language is that of the love of God. That our commitment is to teaching and preaching and declaring Jesus to a lost world and doing it with lives that express love. We have got to remember our first love in Jesus. Ephesus was a church. Ephesus was strong in understanding and in doctrine and in faith. Weak in love. Well, how can, you, how can you be that way? You can teach the truth. You can fellowship. You can gather in together. You can be strong against the outsiders who come against Jesus. And still not live lives that show the love of God to those who don't know Him. That's Ephesus. Ephesus was the church of the first century as well as a church in the first century. From A.D. 30 to A.D. 100, we see an application of the church At Ephesus, being that first century church, being the apostolic church, which had grown strong in doctrine by the end of the first century, but was weakening in love and needed Jesus to say, it's time to remember your first love. Bridge Fellowship, how's our love? Do we remember our first love? At work, at home, in our relationships one with another. Is love primary? Or is being right more important? Have we forgotten our first love? Has the last day's church pulled an Ephesus? Has the church of this age, of this time in this age, have we Christians left our first love? Now, Wednesday night, 
We started into, as I said, the letters of Jesus to the church with the first letter to Ephesus. Letters that each one are historical and they are corporate and they are personal and they are prophetic. But one of the beautiful things Jesus does in each one of these seven letters is He closes them out with eternal promises. Each church gets an eternal promise, a a part of the larger promise of eternity. So all seven of these promises are for the entire church. They're for us, even here today. Seven promises that I called coming confirmations. Seven of them at the end of each letter. Look at them real quickly so we know what's coming. Verse 7 again, he says, here's the promise, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Skip down to verse 10. The next promise. He says, be faithful, at the very end of verse 10, be faithful until death, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Or down in verse 17, toward the end of the verse, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Skip down to verse 26. The promise is, He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Who's who's the morning star? That's Jesus Himself. I'm going to give Him me, Jesus says. What a promise. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase His name from the book of life. And I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. I have it on good authority that those white garments are going to be sewn in such a way that they feel like flannel. (laughs) Verse 12. He who overcomes, he says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Beautiful promises. And finally, verse 21 of chapter 3, He who overcomes, (laughs) I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne going to be a big throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne eternal promises every church gets an eternal promise every person can receive and apply and accept these eternal promises the entire church gets these promises for they are prophetically given and will be prophetically fulfilled. What do you mean by that? I mean, I mean when you look back at all the prophecies of Hebrew Scripture that have been fulfilled in Jesus so far, they are all fulfilled literally. These are literal promises, my friends. These are promises worth pouring over, even beyond our study in here, to go back and to look at each one of the seven promises. Write them down. Think them through. Consider how marvelous they are. These are encouraging promises, no matter how dark the times may get. Promises of eternity. 
You know, this is what lovers do. They make eternal promises. You've seen it, it's kind of a cliche, but they carve their names in a heart, you know, with forever written underneath it, right there on a tree. You've got Romeo and Juliet, or Wesley and Buttercup. You can see Han and Leah, Fiona and Shrek, whoever you want to put on the tree. Two names with a plus in between, Rick plus Cheryl forever, in the heart, carved there. Of course, aside from Rick and Cheryl, all the rest of those are fictional. (laughs) You know what? Forever love is fictional except in Jesus Christ. There is only one love that is eternal. And it's the love that Jesus gives. And when He says, I want to take your name and put it with my name and stick it in a heart on a tree forever, you know it's going to be forever. You and me forever, Jesus says. And I hear that and I read these promises and what comes to mind is how can someone take all of that in and walk away from it? How can someone hear that and first of all not respond to the loving promises of Jesus much more turn around and and walk away? Well, there's an answer to that and if you keep your finger there in Revelation 2 and go back to Matthew 13 one more time, we will see that answer. Matthew 13. Matthew 13 and Revelation 2 and 3 are parallel passages. I'm absolutely convinced of this. And we're going to hit them in a cursory way. I'll bring them up bit by bit perhaps as we go through. Definitely this morning I want to look at the first parable. But there are seven parables in Matthew 13. Seven parables, not just parables, but parables of the kingdom. Seven kingdom parables... Seven letters to the church, which are citizens of the kingdom. So right there, you've got to assume there's got to be something. And I believe there is. In fact, if you look at the parable of the sower, which we will look at again in just a moment, the parable of the sower speaks to Ephesus. The tares in the wheat, well, that one speaks to Smyrna. The mustard seed speaks of Pergamos, the leaven in the loaf. Points us to Thyatira. The hidden treasure in the field indicates Sardis, the precious pearl of great value, Philadelphia, and the dragnet of fish, Laodicea. And there is interesting and intricate connection between the parables and these letters. Did Jesus intend this? (laughs) Sure looks like it to me. Jesus is always intentional. He doesn't speak a loose word. He always knows exactly what it is that He's saying. Just consider this morning, consider Ephesus. Think about Ephesus. Ephesus had a heart problem. What is the parable of the sower about? The soil of the heart. The whole thing is about how the heart receives the Word of God and Ephesus has the heart problem. And so Jesus teaches, Matthew 13, verse 3, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. 
Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And I reminded you that by the time we get to Revelation, it's just see, he who has an ear, let him hear. There's already been hearing loss since the parables were given, and now the letters are being written. But in this parable of the sower, we see Jesus is talking about the soil of the heart. And how people will respond to the Word of God. And it's, it's graphic. It's perfect. It describes exactly what we see taking place in the world around us. Jesus gives three reasons why the love of God gets left. Remember your first love. You have left your first love, Jesus says to Ephesus. Three reasons the love gets left. If you look down in verse 19, Jesus explains the parable of the sower saying... When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's how we know the soil is the heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The seed is the word of God. The sower is Jesus, but the sower is anyone who sows the seed. Which as we talked about last week is you and me. We are sowers today. And you sow the seed of the word, and it's going to fall on the heart. And there are those who, well, they're, they're the ones I would say we would call no love. No love. N-O. No love. This is the person who leaves the love of God before a relationship can even begin. The word is sown. The word is spoken. But it, it bounces around there on the hard pan soil of the heart, and it's just not received. No love. You can't leave your first love because there is no love. The seed never gets in. Verse 20, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That's what I call emo love. No love. Don't receive it at all. Emo love is all emotional. It's all superficial. It's all Blueberry Hill thrill love, you know? And someone who shows up to the service and the worship team just happens to be banging on all cylinders that night. And the teaching is impressive. And the people are engaged. And this person goes, yeah, yeah, woohoo, I'm in. And a week later they're gone. Or a month or two. So excited. Yay, Jesus. The problem with this heart is it's not too hard. It's too soft. It doesn't have any root. It's all goo, no truth. It's all about the feels, and when the feels are gone, when the goo is gone, there's no root of faithfulness to sustain it. So that's emo love. Another type of person who walks away, who leaves then the first love, and then Jesus describes in verse 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That's what I would call no more love. No more love. I ain't got no time for that. No more love. Well, what do you mean? I, I got work to do. <laughs> you know, I got a house to maintain. I got bills to pay. I got kids to cart around. I got sports events and concerts to get to. I got so much going on. Listen, this is the person who says, I'm all booked up. And it is, in my opinion, the number one reason for a love left in the American church today. This is the American church problem. 
We are too busy for Jesus. We got too much going on for Jesus. I can't get there. My schedule is just booked too tight. I, I can't involve myself in that. I got too many other things going on. Now, please hear me as a caveat to this. I am not saying that your service for Jesus has to be in the four walls of this building or in this fellowship right here. Your service to Jesus may be in your workplace, may be among people who don't even attend the Bridge Fellowship. That's fine. That's ministry. I'm talking about people who don't even have time to do any kind of ministry, whether in their church or in their community, because they're just too busy. No more love. That's Ephesus. Too engaged in the world. Chasing too hard after the almighty dollar that doesn't count for anything in the last days. Except for what it can do for the kingdom. I love that Jesus said that. Hey, make use of unrighteous mammon for the kingdom. You know, you're going to spend your money? Spend it on the church. Oh, okay. I get it. Now, now we're coming to it. <laughs> End of the year, it's raise time. I know what Rick's talking about. (laughs) You know, I've said this to you before. (laughs) Some don't like me saying this. Give it to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. If you can't give it here, give it somewhere. But engage with Jesus financially, in terms of your schedule, in terms of what's going on, Otherwise, you're Ephesus, man. You have left your first love. What did John write? 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. No love, the person who doesn't receive it at all. Emo love, the emotional follower who falls away. And then no more love, because i got no time. Hard hearts, rootless hearts, busy, fruitless hearts. But Jesus shares that there is one more, verse 23. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil. This is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. I love that Jesus says that because it doesn't matter how much fruit you bear, just that you bear. Some are going to, by living faithfully and following Jesus, have one person give their life to the Lord because of their influence. In their entire lifetime, just one. Praise God for the one. Some will have the Billy Grahams, the thousands come to Jesus. Praise God. The number doesn't matter. In fact, the number's not our concern at all. That's His concern. Our concern is receiving the Word into the soil of the heart and and generating that fruit, responding to Him, living based on what we've learned. And the fruit is going to come, some a little, some a lot, some in the middle, doesn't really matter. These are those who know love. K-N-O-W. You know love. It's the head who hears it, but it gets into the heart. And this heart, this good soil, man, is going to bear fruit. Because you know the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love's the key component of the nine fruits that are listed in the fruit 
of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, out of which comes joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. Man, this is the church. The church that receives the Word. It's why it's so important and why we've been in the Word for so long and why we stay in the Word together. Because the church that's in the Word and is receiving the love of Jesus Christ through the Word, this is the church that is going to bear fruit. This is the lampstand that burns bright. We talked about Wednesday night. The lampstand that is lit up, hearts aflame with first love, joy for Jesus. It's the church that overcomes being loved less because of a love left. See, that's the danger of leaving the first love is ultimately you become loveless and hardened. Now, some might hear this parable and hear the application and say, I wish I could be part of that. I wish I could be part of a lampstand that burns bright. I'd love to engage in, in that kind of a, a, a fellowship. But my life, see if this is you, my life has had too many conflicts. My life, y'all don't understand, has too much pain. There's too many wounds on my heart. I would love for my heart to be soft, but I have to protect myself because of the pain that I've gone through in my life. Listen, if your heart feels hard or rootless or fruitless, the Bible has an answer for you. The prophet Hosea chapter 10, verse 12 says, So with a view to righteousness. That's not a view to yourself. It's a view to righteousness. You sow it to God. You reap in accordance with grace. Chesed in the Hebrew. Kindness. The loving kindness of God. And then he says this. Break up your fallow ground. The heart's hard. Great. Break it up. Break up the fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. That's how you break up the fallow ground. You just keep bringing it back to Jesus over and over and He starts to massage and soften and strengthen at the same time your heart. It's time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. Again, Hosea 10.12, a key verse if the heart is hard. You come to Jesus. You seek the Lord. You break up the fallow ground and you know, listen, He won't let you down. He's not going to be aloof or distant. Jesus is not the lover to whom you pour out your heart who turns around and walks away. That's not Jesus Christ. It may be me. Sorry to say. It might be some of us. You might come into this place and feel like people here have just walked away. And you might be upset about that until you realize, so you understand, those people are trying to find Jesus too. I'm seeking a softer, stronger heart too. We seek the Lord. We look to Jesus and He does not let us down. He's the one who wants to carve your name next to His in the middle of a heart on a very special tree with the word forever. A very special tree? Oh yeah. You see, those who know love, who know His love, will get His promises. Back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Revelation 2, 7 is what I would call a postscript to the letter. It's a P.S. Every letter has its P.S. These eternal promises are like P.S.'s of Jesus to the churches. We're looking at them, thinking about them this way. 
For the end of this letter, to the loveless, love-left church, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. There are three aspects of this promise. Look at them. Think about them. There's the promiser, and then there's the promised, and then there's the promise itself. The promiser. Alexander McLaren, that great old Scottish preacher, said, This is a majestic utterance that is from the promiser. The one who's speaking. The one who says, I will grant. This is a majestic utterance, worthy of coming down from the majestic figure portrayed in the first chapter of this book. In it, Jesus Christ claims to be the arbiter of men's desertions and the giver of their rewards. This is Jesus, the promiser. Remember what we studied back in verse 8 of chapter 1? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the promiser. The promiser. you got to look at the promiser before you even look at the promise because the promiser is the one about whom it is written, Numbers 23.19, has he said and will he not do it? Has He spoken? And will He not make it good? If Jesus says He's going to do it, He's going to do it. Period. So you don't even have to worry about whether or not the promise is going to happen. When Jesus says, you and me forever, He means it. He will follow through with it. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul wrote, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, I can promise that all who show up next Sunday, every one of you who are here next Sunday, so put this on your calendars, you're going to receive a $1,000 Costco gift card. <laughs> all you got to do is show up. And I've got the cards for you. I'm just going to pass them out, be the most popular pastor on the island for at least a few hours. <laughs> the thing is, I have neither the resource nor the desire to do that. <laughs> You make all kinds of promises. If you don't have the ability to follow through, what good is the promise? But He has the ability. And on top of the ability, Jesus has the desire. When He makes a promise, it is, it's Him. It, he's both willing and able to follow through. Even better, what He promises is forever. It is truly forever. Meaning what? Meaning if you look at all these promises, let me just spray these out over you. <laughs> I will grant, He says in verse 7. I will give, He says in verses 10, 17, 26, and 28. In chapter 3, verse 5, He says, I will not erase, I will confess. In verse 12 of chapter 3, I will make, I will write. And finally, in verse 21 of chapter 3, I will grant. And what's important about that is every single one of those are future active verbs. That is, they are ongoing perpetual action. What does that mean? That means that not only will He fulfill these promises at a future point in time, but He will keep fulfilling these promises through all eternity. He will never stop. When He says, I will not erase your name in the book of life, that doesn't mean on salvation day. That means forever. When He says, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life in the garden of God, that means that's yours forever. 
And once the promise is fulfilled, it continues forever. These are promises made in heaven, folks, that will never end. Active in their giving, future, irrevocable, permanent promises. Man, I love that. They'll never wear out. They will never fade out. They they will never be wiped out. They will never be withdrawn. See, I can say to my wife right now, I will love you forever. What I really mean is I will love you till the day I die. At least as your husband. I'll love her forever because we're both in Jesus. But as her husband, I'll love you till the day I die. That's what I'm saying because that's as far as I can go. That's the most that I've got to offer. Jesus says, I'll love you forever. It never ends. These promises are eternal. And the question is, do you trust the promiser? The one making the promises in the first place. You see, the Bible says, without faith, without trust, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. See, implicit in in the faith is that we know the promises will be fulfilled. Jesus says, Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And the promiser grants this guarantee. Number two, to the promised. The promised. That is, specifically, to him who overcomes. I will grant. I will grant. The promiser, to him who overcomes. Hmm. You know what that means? That means there's something to be overcome. That means to get to the promise, there is an overcoming that will take place, that must take place. Oh, I'm not saying as a requirement of your salvation, but in the fulfillment of the promises, we will overcome. We must overcome. Implicit in the glorious, wonderful tree of life, garden of God promise is the guarantee that it's not going to be easy getting there. Don't expect it to be a cakewalk. Again, Alexander McLaren said, Scripture teaches us that at one moment there may be the clash of battle and the whiz of arrows round one's head and in the next moment the laurel-crowned quiet of the victor. I like that. In one moment, the battle is raging in your life. In one moment, the pain is intense. In one moment, the sorrow is heavy. But in the next, the crown of the victor and the peace of eternal life. The promise is to those who overcome. Man, I love the sound of the promise. I'm not so sure about the overcoming part. That's the part I'm not looking forward to. If if life is peaceful and easy for you right now, if you've got a peaceful, easy feeling... You're going to have to overcome. There is something you will overcome. And not just some of us, all of us. We will all have to overcome. We're all going to go through it. It gives me a lot more understanding for you as brothers and sisters when I realize there are many others who are overcoming many more difficult things than what I've had to overcome. But we will all overcome. In Zechariah chapter 4, we read about the vision of the two olive trees and the lampstand on Wednesday night. It's really cool. An amazing, beautiful prophecy. 
But in answering the question, how do we make it through the arrows and the attacks and the pain and the hardship, how does it, how do we do this, and especially made all the more vivid this past week, how do we overcome in this dark, evil world? The Lord says, not by might, Zechariah 4, 6, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus said when they asked Him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? How can we overcome? You might ask the question. John 6.28, John 6.29, Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. How do we overcome this world? Skip back just a couple of pages to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Let me just let John tell you. Here's how you overcome. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the begotten of Him, that is Jesus. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Wait a minute, how, what, what, how do we know we're born of God if we love Him? Our first love. We overcome the world if we are born of God. And verse 4 continuing, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And gang, listen, in that belief... Is trust. I trust the promiser. I love Jesus. Trust Him. He is your first love. Keep believing in Him. Keep trusting in Him. And if you have left your first love, Revelation 2.5, remember from where you've fallen. It's very simple. Jesus says, you've left. Oh no, we've left. What do we do? Remember. Remember your first love. Remember where you've fallen. He says, and Repent. Repent, literally there, Mark, right? It's to change your mind. Change your mind. Repent. And I say return or restore. That is, do the deeds you did at first. You remember when your heart was on fire for Jesus? Those of you in the church, followers of Jesus, we all have had those moments or that moment at the beginning where we said, Yes, Lord! Your promises are good. Your person is real. I believe. And we we have that that thrill, that joy of truth in us. Hey, go back and do what you did when you felt that way. Remember and repent and return to those things. It's very simple. The answer for the one who leaves. Listen. Boy, this is marriage counseling 101. And it's what I, I think if every marriage counselor just said this, we would save a lot of time and money. The answer for the one who leaves is very simple. Come back. But I left. Well, come back. But I left. Well, come back. Come back to love. Come back and love. And if you're in love with Jesus right now this morning, carry on. Persevere in it. Cling to Him. Why? Because of number three. The promise. The promise. Look at it now. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Man, woman, Jesus is calling us back to the garden. 
Back to the Garden of Eden? No, no. Back to the Garden of God, which is better than the Garden of Eden. What do you mean? It's far better. The garden ahead of us compared to the garden behind us? No comparison. Hey, the garden behind was paradise. It's perfect. It's a wonderful place to live and run around and eat fruit and be naked. It's just good. The garden garden out ahead of us is better by far. Why? Think it through just for a moment. Adam and Eve left the first garden. Because they left their first love for another kind of fruit. They decided perhaps there was something better. They traded out the tree of life for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hey, that's kind of what Ephesus is doing. They're trading out the tree of life, the tree of love, the tree that has their name carved with Jesus in a heart. They're trading that out for the tree of knowledge. Discernment. Doctrine. Hey, knowledge, discernment, and doctrine are vastly, vitally important. That's why we're in the Word. But without love, 1 Corinthians 13, it is nothing. Man, Adam and Eve, they wanted the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.16, the Lord God commanded them, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And it begs the question, why did He plant that tree there in the first place? For goodness sakes, Lord, if you don't want them to eat from it, if it's deadly to them, why plant it? And then command them not to eat from it. To produce obedience. To protect their innocence. And to provide for free will. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the command not to eat from it does all of that. It produces or was to produce obedience. By not eating from it, they would begin to develop that understanding of obedience because there was nothing else they had to obey. The rest was just eat and run. Have fun. Kids. Don't do this. Obey me in this one thing. To protect their innocence because you know what happened. The moment they ate from it, what were they? They were ashamed. They had never been ashamed before. They were just happy. But now they're ashamed. God wanted to protect their innocence and He provided them for free will. That's why He planted the tree in the first place. But listen, this is what love does. It always risks someone leaving of their own free will. Love does that. I'm going to trust you and in that trust, I'm going to risk that at some point you may take off on me. And that's what God did at the very beginning. And Adam and Eve, they let go of their obedience They lost their innocence and they left their first love and ended up barred not only from the garden of God, but Genesis 3.22-24 tells us they were barred from the tree of life. The tree of life. Note that in the promise. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, in the garden of God. The tree of life. It's still growing. It will be available. It will be there in New Jerusalem for us to eat from. It's promised to us. And get this, the tree of life, oh, biblically speaking, is so much more than just keeping the old ticker going. The tree of life, man, the Bible tells us the tree of life embodies wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 
She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. Her who? Wisdom. The tree of life depicts gracious, kind speech. Proverbs 15.4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. The Bible tells us the tree of life suggests holiness and, and salvation. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. And the tree of life epitomizes purpose and meaning and satisfaction in life. Proverbs 13.12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's wisdom. It's kind speech. It's holiness and salvation and purpose and meaning and satisfaction. All of that is found in the tree of life. All of that is a tree of life. And Jesus is saying, I'll grant that to you. I'll give that to you. It's my promise to you. And not only will I grant it to you on a certain day, that tree will never wither and die. It will be there forever. Future active. Always. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that wonderful? Jesus wants that for you to eat of the tree, to taste of the satisfaction. And he said in Matthew 5 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. Filled. That's the promise. Now listen, listen. Back in in Matthew 13, we're almost done here, but pay attention. Take this to heart. Matthew 13, verse 52, again Jesus said, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. New and old. The majority of what is written in the first 20 chapters of the book of Revelation is old. It's all been talked about before, one way or another. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the ancient portents, and the prophets, and the pictures scattered throughout the Old Testament. And we'll see that. As I said, somewhere between 518 and 550, I guess depending on your translation, references to the Hebrew Scriptures in the first 20 chapters of Revelation. Things old. Why does Jesus just repeat them? He takes what is scattered throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and He puts them in sequential order. And He shows us how it all works together. What would have been impossible through all the various prophets across all that span of time, Jesus takes hold of and He puts it together in a way that can be understood. That's Revelation 1-20. through Things that are old. But in the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, we get completely new material. Stuff, my friends, that the old prophets never foresaw. They never foresaw anything beyond the Messianic Kingdom. Spencer's chapter 20. The Millennial Kingdom, they prophesied of, they talked about, they looked forward to, they longed for in the Hebrew Scriptures. Everything leading up to that. The Messianic Kingdom. Everything beyond that? Nothing there in the Hebrew Scriptures. But when you... Get to Revelation 21 and 22. Suddenly, we get completely new material. So, stay with me. To the Jews, 
The tree of life was history. It was history in the garden and a picture of these other good things, but never seen again. Tree of life doesn't show up in Revelation chapter 20. It shows up in Revelation chapter 21 in New Jerusalem. It will not be present in the millennial kingdom. Got to wait for New Jerusalem. It's things old. But in the promise that Jesus makes here, we discover that the tree of life grows beyond the kingdom and into eternity in New Jerusalem and on and forever. Revelation 22.14 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city, that garden city, the new garden of God. But listen, you want to know what makes the tree of life in the new garden of God so much better than the tree of life in Eden? What makes this better? For Adam and Eve, their innocent, untried, untested hearts could not possibly understand or fathom the value of this promise. Everything was easy in the garden. Everything was whatever they needed. But in the New Jerusalem Garden of God, it's going to be all the more joyful and wonderful and satisfying precisely because of all the conflicts and hurts and pains and wounds that we have overcome on the way there. Do you realize how sweet it's going to taste? And if your life is hard, it's going to be all the sweeter in New Jerusalem. If you have much to overcome, It will be better for the sake of all that. Revelation 12.11 says they overcame Him, that is Antichrist, because of the blood of the Lamb, that is faith in Jesus. And because of the word of their testimony, they just never gave up. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Do you love this life? Are you just so in love with this life that when hard times come, you're like, no, that's not fair, I want my life to be better. And love your life when faced with death. How sweet and satisfying the tree of life will be to hungry hearts who understand what it's like not to have it right now. Hearts that belong to those who overcome by the Holy Spirit, by the power of our first love. So how's your heart? How's the soil? If it's hard, break it up, man. Turn to Jesus. Let Him strengthen and soften. Because as we began, our world is a mess. There's no denying it. Our country is in a clash of ideals with no common ground in sight. Evil, hatred, seem to abound everywhere. And by the way, it's not lost on me that the anti-Semitic attack yesterday was at the Tree of Life synagogue. Or, Lasimcha. If you look at the name on their website, it's Tree of Life or La Simcha. And Or La Simcha, that entire phrase, literally means to bring joy. Tree of Life, to bring joy, synagogue. And that's right where evil struck. And that's where hatred was found. And this Tree of Life, bringer of joy synagogue, became ground zero of sorrow and death yesterday. For all their best efforts in that quiet neighborhood of Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania. Even in the, even the name just sounds peaceful, you know? Little squirrels running around. 
And that's where evil struck. And evil will continue to strike in this world. I immediately shot an, e- an email out to John Linus and for our security team. Hey guys, heads up. Here's yet another house of worship in America that's been attacked by evil and darkness. So we have security. And by the way, if you're interested in helping with security, talk to John Linus. It's important. I, I hate that we have to have it at all. But listen. I end with this. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 tells us, Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and from the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the what? Healing of the nations. The tree of life is our healing. Do the nations of the world need healing today? Oh yeah. How about you? Do you need healing? I I pray that this promise of the tree of life in paradise found in New Jerusalem will heal and will restore and will increase the love of God in Christ Jesus among us here. Let's pray together. Most Holy Father, glorious Lord Jesus, and Spirit of the living God, we bow before You. And we just say thank You, thank You, thank You for the promise. What a picture. And it's all the more amazing, Father, because this picture is reality. This is truth. This garden, this tree... This eternal love that you offer, that you extend, it's it's all true. And Father, I pray that everyone who hears this word this morning will receive this as the truth. Not as some allegorical, metaphorical picture of, hey, we won. But truth. May we know, may we be more assured today than we were when we came in of the love of Jesus that is so passionate for us. Lord Jesus, You never give up. You just keep bringing Your love. Thank You. Father, from the beginning, You poured out Your love. You have never relented. Thank You. And Spirit, You move among us, reminding us what it means to love. Thank You. I ask that we would remember our first love and we would act in what we remember. And Lord, if there's anyone among us during this service right now who needs to know more of Your love, to to accept and receive the softening of the heart that comes by Your love, would You move in us and through us and draw us near to You? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.